1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. Ishtar, a bearded goddess of sex and war from ancient Mesopotamia. She was hot-tempered with a lust for conquest, and her priestesses were transgender.
0: Oya, Yoruba goddess of the wind, storms, lightning, tornadoes, thunder, commerce, and war. She rules the destruction that comes before positive change.
1: Atalanta, fleet-footed huntress and heroine of ancient Greece who joined the Argonauts. She helped slay the Caledonian boar and refused to marry any man who couldn't beat her in a foot race. She also became a PDA lion.
0: Papa Papalotl, a skeletal warrior goddess of the Aztec pantheon, sometimes depicted with butterfly wings lined with obsidian knives.
1: This episode is part of our Women of Myth series where we interview podcasters, authors, scholars, and more about the amazing women of world mythology.
0: It's based on our book of the same name, Women of Myth, illustrated by the amazing Sarah Richard. It's available wherever books are sold, or go to ancienthistoryfangirl.com to find links to a bookstore near you.
2: I'm going to find it really difficult to carry a novel if she can only communicate in growls.
1: I'm Jen McMenemy.
0: And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl.
1: It is once again a conference of Jennies, or Jens or Jennifers all together in one place because we are so, so excited to have our very dear friend, Jenny Saint, back on the podcast. In case you don't know, if you've been living under a rock, Jennifer Saint is the number one best-selling author of Ariadne, Electra, and her new book, Atalanta, is out now. And we are so excited because we are going to talk about my favorite, as everyone knows, Atalanta, fiercely feminine heroes, goddesses, and maybe some bears. Jenny, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me back again. I'm so excited to be on another episode.
0: Yay! we're so thrilled to have you. This has become a tradition.
1: (laughs) So, as I mentioned in the intro, Atalanta is my favorite Greek mythological heroine. Jenny, What made you want to retell her story in particular?
2: She's just, she is so unique in Greek mythology. I think that Atalanta is a heroine like no other that I had written about before, no other that I'd encountered before. And what really appealed to me in telling her story is that so many people have, well, everyone um, has heard of Jason and the Argonauts. And yet when I told people that I was going to be writing a novel about Atalanta, almost everybody said, who is that? Um, and I just felt very much that she's been um, she's been written out of her own story. And I was just very excited at the prospect of writing her back in.
0: There are so many people in the Argonauts that people don't realize are in the Argonauts. Atalanta is one. Um, we covered a trans man, like a trans hero in another.
1: Oh, yeah, there's so many. I mean, we'll get to it in a little bit because the Argonauts are one of those things that I find hilarious because it is the ancient worlds Avengers Assemble, right? It's like the who's who of all the heroes who existed sometimes outside of the time frames with each other. But it is amazing that Atalanta has been written out of a decent chunk of her story, and when people know about her, it's about the bears or it's about the apples. So, one of my favorite images of Atalanta is she in the literary tradition of ancient Greece is exposed because she is she's a girl baby she has a very interesting experience growing up, particularly as she meets a mother bear.
0: What was it like to delve into Atalanta's earliest history and her experience of being raised by bears? I mean, that
2: was that was really what sparked the whole novel, because I raised it originally as a short story just about the bears. That was kind of where... Um, Atalanta began for me, and um, because I was so enchanted by this image of this of this baby girl um, snuggled up with the other bear cubs. I found it just utterly adorable. I was probably influenced by really loving Disney's The Jungle Book when I was a kid, which I think maybe it has to be cancelled now. Probably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not sure how that one's held up. <laughs> it hasn't held up well, but it's hard not to love
1: Baloo, right? <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly, it was exactly that image that I had. I just really loved it. I felt like what an incredible, magical beginning to a novel, and how how it would just set the tone of this is this is like a different feeling book for me. This is something that is is so so magical from the beginning, and so kind of joyful, and so much a triumph of survival. Um, which are all the things that I wanted this book to be. But yes, when I started writing it as an actual novel, then I realised, okay, I will have to go and research bears. Um, I will have to go and watch some bear documentaries, which was great, um, which I really enjoyed. The bears in mine are a kind of amalgamation of all the bears that I studied. So I kind of looked at grizzly bear behaviour, black bear behaviour, even polar bears, you know, even though there definitely were no polar bears in, in ancient Greece. (laughs) I'm <laughs> just kind of getting an idea of like the way that they move the way that they mother, most importantly. So that was, um, that was really enjoyable. I had a lot of pictures of bears around my study. Yeah, kind of the tactile sense of it, because she's a baby when she's adopted. And I had this kind of issue of I'm telling this as a first person narrative, like my other novels have been so far. So she can't remember the bears clearly. It has to be this kind of sensory blur for her, this kind of impression of what it felt like to be among the bears. And I was also in parallel researching cases of children who who, these kind of real life cases of so-called wild children. Which, when you move out of the realm of Disney and the Jungle Book, these are incredibly sad cases. These are really tragic stories of neglect and abuse. But what I was interested in kind of trying to extrapolate from those as much as is possible is things like the practicalities of, well, if she's being brought up by bears, how is she going to learn human language? Because I'm going to find it really difficult to carry a novel if she can only communicate in growls. And there is, I think, um, a suggestion that there is like a window of language acquisition. And if you are not exposed to language, In that sort of crucial development developmental stage then you will never be able to talk properly so i had to kind of work out okay at what point is she going to leave the bears at what point is artemis and the nymphs are they going to become involved in her upbringing and as it turns out bears are very maternal until they're not (laughs) which is um, that when they when when they're ready to wean the cubs and move on the mother bear will chase them away and it's quite a frightening process so that really seemed to fit, again, with this is a book which begins in nature, it begins in the forest, and it's very much a book of survival of the fittest. And so that kind of the ruthlessness of nature, I th- I felt like a lot of that is in the prologue when she has her history with the bears.
1: Yeah, there's some beautiful scenes early in the book when she's living with the bears, where I think it's when they're fishing, that there's just so much joy in it. But you can also see how the bears have kind of taught her about what it is to hunt there is something there where she's kind of also learning her place weirdly from bears in in the in the in the world of the wild
0: atalanta is raised by animals in the forest and then she becomes a huntress she meets artemis and trains as a huntress in the forest and was there a conflict for you in figuring out what her attitude was towards killing animals that she may have lived among when she was a child
2: So actually, that didn't come up too much as an issue, because I felt so much that she is like rooted in the forest and that she knows her place in it. And I think that when she becomes a huntress and she is in the mould of Artemis, which is how Atalanta often appears in mythology, that she's kind of the mortal counterpart to Artemis, like the mortal version of her. And I just, I felt that actually that moral conflict wouldn't arise for her because she is part you know she's growing up in the wild she is seeing that cycle all the time of predator and prey and she's going to take her place in it and I think she grows up with such a determination that she is going to be at the top of that chain That I didn't feel that actually she would have um she would have an issue with it and yeah, there's like a real rough and tumble element to it um, that that toughens her up right from the very beginning. She triumphs over adversity in surviving being exposed on the mountainside to start with. And then yeah, the bears, the bears don't really um give any quarter.
0: So Atalanta is your third novel, and it's really different from your two previous books. Both Ariadne and Electra were set in palaces and big cities and followed women who were operating within a male-dominated society. But Atalanta begins in the wilds and the woods, and it follows a world where men are largely absent, at least for the first part of the novel. What was it like creating this world where women lived amongst the wilds?
2: So there was such an element of escapism in writing this, um, and I really felt ready for that shift, um, that kind of move to a different kind of Greek mythology. And yeah, when it came to creating the Society of Nymphs, because I know that in myths, and you've done an episode, a brilliant episode on Atalanta, where you talked, I think, about her being adopted by hunters and that there's an assumption that the hunters would be male. But actually, you said, why would they be? Because in a kind of rural subsistence society, you are not going to be um, adhering so tightly to gender norms. You are going to be using your best hunters. And if they happen to be women, then so be it. And it made a lot of sense to me that Atalanta would be taken in by women because this is a forest belonging to Artemis. The bears are so closely associated with Artemis that they're an animal Uh, very much sacred to her and Artemis has a band of huntresses in the forest she has her band of nymphs who accompany her so it made it made much more sense to me that Atalanta would become a part of their community rather than becoming the part of a human society straight away and so there was there was this just this total freedom in who this woman can become if she grows up in a society where she is not taught like Ariadne is like a lecturer is where her place is in relation to men, where she just becomes purely herself. And there's um there's a hydra in the British Museum that I saw with with Elodie Harper. And um, we went to the British Museum together, where you have this beautiful bars where the main part of it is these women carrying water and they're looking at each other and they're laughing and you can there's this real sense of conviviality of kind of comradeship and this collaboration between them and then at the top of the vase very small there's a little section where men are fighting and it really felt like here we are the women are the main characters and what we're seeing is that they are doing something practical they're doing something pragmatic and important they're carrying out these vital duties of you know bringing water they are like lifting very heavy jars and um and they're they're existing so independently as themselves and that was so much the spirit that i wanted to capture in those opening chapters with the nymphs that they are providing atalanta with her education and i was thinking as well of the ancient greek attitude towards athleticism because atalanta becomes such a great athlete where there is more of a connection between like nurturing the body and the mind together. Whereas I think in modern society, we are much more accustomed to a disconnect, kind of you are brainy or or you are sporty. And I was definitely never sporty. With Atalanta, I wanted to kind of embody that more holistic approach that you would kind of, that you would see in like maybe an Athenian gymnasium, Though there wouldn't be women in that, but where you are training your body and then you are also training your mind.
1: You might see them in a Spartan gymnasium. Yes. Oh, that's true. Very true. The Spartans were very interested in women being very healthy and they had very different lives. Like men and women lived quite separately in some regards. And some of that was about them procreating in a weird, not great way.
0: (laughs) I wouldn't call it a feminist utopia.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of where I was going with that. So Artemis is a major presence in the novel. She's a deeply problematic goddess because she doesn't always behave the best towards other women. What was your process like uncovering this goddess, her motivations for her actions, and how did that influence your storytelling?
2: So, I mean, deeply problematic, aren't they all?
1: (laughs) Very true. I find her less problematic weirdly than Athena. That's a low bar. (laughs) You know... I give Athena a lot of flack, but having talked to Natalie Haynes about her, I kind of have a new appreciation for Athena in some ways. When we did our research on Artemis two seasons ago when we were doing Gender Rebels, what I found interesting about her is how different she's been throughout all of her incarnations. So I was interested in like what you learned about her and how that helped you really flesh her out in this book. Like I feel like she is such a major character.
2: Yeah, so kind of making a goddess such such a major part of the novel from the very beginning, um, I really wanted to impress upon the reader that she is not just like a kind of an extra powerful human, that's not what Greek gods are, they are something else entirely. And I think with Artemis, I find I find her less problematic than the others. And I think part of that is that she is so deeply connected to nature. She is so much, you can see her as kind of a force of nature, and that makes her cruelty and her ruthlessness slightly more palatable because you feel like it's it's part of that I kind of wanted to weave the two together the idea that although this forest is a beautiful place and it's a place of safety for Atalanta it is not a place that is free of danger and it's not a kind of a it's not a paradise because it's ruled over by somebody like Artemis who exists like all the gods do as really kind of pure vicious ego in so many ways with with really no kind of moral compass And their relationship with human beings is all about what it's going to bring for them, really. She's not kind of nurturing Atalanta out of the goodness of her heart because she's just got an urge to adopt. That's not that's not where this is coming from. Um, So it's not altruistic. Um, so in in having her as this this like mentor figure and this kind of maternal stand in for Atalanta, it was so interesting to me how she's going to shape Atalanta's character, how um, Atalanta is going to grow up in her image, idolising her and the, the issues that that is going to create because she is only ever going to be um, a tool for Artemis. And I wanted to make it very clear from the beginning in the stories that I include about what happens to the nymph. So including the story of Arethusa, of Callisto and of Actaeon, I think our ways of just demonstrating that Artemis is 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 like I say, like she is not a human being, and um, she is going to act with this very decisive.
1: I've used the word ruthless so many times to describe her, <laughs> but that's what she is. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely in the in the research we did. She's definitely a stand-in for the wilds of nature, right? Like nature kind of is a bit vicious and and doesn't care. And in Artemis's case, she is the same. Like, she can be very kind and giving and she can also be very ruthless and very vicious and very cold.
0: Not unlike the bear. Well, that's
1: why they're sacred, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that was like a, a thread that we found was that the connection between these wild women and bears... It makes sense. And I, I
2: always thought, I was always slightly thrown um, by the fact that she's the goddess of childbirth, even though she is, well, she's goddess associated with childbirth, even though she is the antithesis of of maternal, and she's a guardian of young women. And also, I, I always thought that childbirth and hunting, these two things that she is associated with, seemed so very different to each other, because I thought, well, this is about bringing death, and the other one is about bringing life. But they both require this sort of warrior like strengths i always come back to birth in the ancient world as being like a war because it is this thing that women face that they may or may not survive that may or may
1: not cause them um, a great deal of suffering and injury And, you know, in world mythology, that connection between childbirth and war is very tightly woven into other goddesses across different pantheons. In Western mythology, we pull them apart and make them two different things. That's why the confusion is with Artemis. But in other mythologies, they are very closely connected.
2: That is so interesting. And that's not something I was aware of at all. And I think it really makes sense. Um, even though our instinct is to kind of think, no, those two things are not the same. When you start to really consider it, there is that that real connection.
0: Yeah. And, and it makes sense for me just in terms of the connection to bears as well, because bears are very maternal. I mean, the bears are incredibly vicious and scary in protection of their children, right? Mother bears. Like I grew up hiking in Vermont and that was kind of like one thing we're very much taught if we're going to be wandering around in the woods is do not get in between a mother bear and their cubs like they will rip you apart so a bear is a fearsome predator and a bear is also fiercely maternal so I can see this really ancient connection happening that may have occurred in the minds of people who were closely observing nature like that
1: hello everyone stuck you here. Available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
2: I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II.
0: They had no idea that she was Britain's top female
1: codebreaker. We'll hear of
2: daring risk takers.
1: What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend.
2: Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Atlanta had so many adventures. She slays two centaurs, draws first blood in the hunt for the Caledonian boar, is an argonaut on the hunt for the Golden Fleece, and finally she's a princess who refuses to marry any man not her equal. She does a lot, not just for a woman, but for any hero. What was your favorite adventure that you got to retell, and why?
2: Oh, good question. So I was really put off by the foot race. This really discouraged me from writing the novel for some time. Because that required so much unpicking for me. The idea that she says that she is not going to marry and um, to get around this, she will only marry a man who can beat her in a foot race, which she knows is impossible because she is faster than anyone could ever be. And then somehow in, in the mythology, she's tricked, she's deceived by Hippomenes throwing these golden apples down in front of her. And I found, I found in my first reading of this that it felt very anti-feminist, that it was kind of she's distracted by something pretty and shiny and so is, is deceived out of um, maintaining her autonomy and her independence and her freedom. So I really thought for a long time, well, I'm not going to be able to write this novel because how on earth am I going to work the foot race into it? But that led me to look so much more deeply into the golden apples of the Hesperides and to get much more interested in what these apples symbolise. So I ended up really enjoying that part of the research and that part of Atalanta's story. I think because this is the fun thing sometimes about retelling mythology, that you have this puzzle that you have to unpick, that something happens and you are thinking, well, how do I put this in a novel and make this make any sense at all? Where does Hippomenes get these apples from? And why on earth does he think it's a good strategy? And why is it a good strategy? going into the history of the apples, which I actually included, I did like a bonus short story in the Barnes and Noble exclusive edition of Atalanta about the history of these apples, which led me back to the more ancient stories of Gaia, the primordial goddess from whom all life comes, and how she gives these golden apples to Hera as a wedding present. And I really was intrigued by that idea It felt to me like a kind of passing on of power through the women from this kind of mother goddess to this queen of the goddesses, really bypassing Zeus in the whole process. It's a wedding present to Hera, not to Zeus and Hera as a couple. And then these apples, they're so beautiful. They give the world its sunset because of the glow that reflects off them at the the western edge of the world when when Helios is driving the sun down in its chariot. That was really poetic to me. And then these apples end up being a prize coveted by gods and heroes alike. So obviously they sparked the Trojan war in this other really weirdly anti-feminist seeming story where somehow Athena, Hera and Aphrodite are happy to be judged by a goat herd over who's the most beautiful.
1: I mean, also just Athena in a beauty contest. It just, you know, I'm not saying she's not stunningly beautiful. I'm not I'm not asking to be smote, smoten, smitten.
0: Smoted. Smoted. I think we settled on smoted. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Smauged? Sorry, always gotta bring Smaug in. Smaugd. <laughs> but yeah, it to me that always felt weird, the inclusion of Athena. But she doesn't need to be validated. No. There's no other point in her mythology where she asks any man to validate her.
2: No. So that is weird. That is another really weird story. Which I also did as a bonus short story in the UK paperback of Electrode. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Do you know what, Jenny, when we covered Atalanta and Women of Myth, one of the things I found out about the golden apples in history is that there was, I think it was a quince fruit, it was, it was a sort of a goldeny um, fruit that was given to Minoan girls who had foot races. So the idea of that foot race may have come from ancient Minoan culture where girls had more agency and the ability to choose their husbands.
2: That is perfect for kind of giving a clue to the origin of that very odd story about Atalanta. I love that.
1: It was one of the ways that I was able to sort of like get my head around that and go back into that sort of more ancient culture and think like, oh, is this this something left over from the Minoans that we don't know about, but maybe explains this myth?
2: Yeah, I'm always so interested in, in that idea that we can kind of find a route to mythology. It's why it's so satisfying, isn't it, to think that it's kind of this place where history meets magic, and then we get this fantastical story, but it contains this kernel of truth. And um, so, yeah, so that is another piece of the puzzle, which I, I really wish I'd known before. I, really, I should have read your book before. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it didn't exist before. It's fine. <laughs>
2: This is like the whole chronology of Greek mythology, which, as we know, doesn't exist. I'd feel like there we go. There's like a time leap that I wish I could have gone through.
0: And that's sort of uh, something that we've been finding in mythologies that we've studied throughout the world is that there frequently is a kernel of truth that is buried in the history, or like this mythology sprang up to preserve the memory of something. Speaking as a non-mythographer person who's just a nerd about this stuff, it seems to be almost the purpose of mythology to like preserve history in a way that will be remembered for people who didn't have writing.
2: Yeah, that is, that is such a perfect way to put it, because this is something I get asked quite a lot about, what, what's the enduring appeal of mythology? And that's something I'm always trying to explain, that it's because there is something important and significant in these stories, and that's how they've been handed down and survived so long.
0: Let's talk about the Caledonian boar. This is a seminal moment in Atalanta's life. She leaves her world of the wild, she meets Meliager, and proves herself amongst men. And in some ways, she takes a stand against her own goddess Artemis by slaying the boar that was sent by the goddess as a punishment. What was it like to retell this epic event from Atalanta's point of view? And what did you learn about the story that surprised you?
2: So I definitely lent heavily on Ovid for this one. Um, His description of this scene I read and reread. And I wanted to really include some kind of touchstone moments from the Metamorphoses in my description of this scene. So that's kind of the mixture of kind of Argonauts and other heroes who come and some of the things that happen to them during the process. It's like a real tragedy in the Metamorphoses, the the way this scene plays out. It gets so very, it's like, it's really frightening. It gets very dark. It gets... um, incredibly um, upsetting at the end of it. But I really like what you see in Meliega in this scene because we know from the other books that I have written that I maybe have a low opinion of some Greek heroes and it's justified.
0: No. Shocker.
1: <laughs> no. Theseus, can you hear me? Theseus um, <laughs> has a cameo
2: at this point. He's there at the California bar, and so he shows up and I really I really liked the idea I was trying was like really entertaining myself trying to figure out at what point in Ariadne's life is this taking place not relevant to Atalanta I like it when the kind of the you know the universe is touch so but Meliega in this just behaves like kind of generally speaking and I'm gonna go back to your comment earlier about the bar being low but he behaves like a throughout this episode because it's Atalanta like he said who draws the first blood and it's Meliega who kills the boar and then he presents her with its tusks and its pelt at the end and this obviously kicks off a great ruckus among the other men who don't think she deserves it and I think it's definitely possible to read that with a much more cynical eye and think well Meliega who like is married but he's fallen in love with Atalanta and uh, maybe he thinks that this is just a great way to seduce Atalanta because this is the best way to a woman's heart is to give her um, boar tusks
1: every time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, not
1: every woman. <laughs>
0: with Atalanta, possibly.
1: <laughs> yeah, with Atalanta, this is pretty. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: yeah, uh, so I I liked the way that, we, that even if we're going to be cynical about his motivation, uh, I like the way that this is a moment in which He just doesn't seem to have his masculinity threatened by her prowess and her success. It seems to be a moment where he can recognize that she is proficient and he cannot perceive that as an insult to himself and his own status. And so he can be quite, quite generous and and fair minded in his presentation at the end, even if he has an ulterior motive, which, okay, maybe he does. So I really liked that because, you know, we just don't see very much of that in the rest of the metamorphoses
0: yeah he's like he's like kind of a decent guy am I giving him too much credit well I I, you know I I really liked him
2: I liked the opportunity in this novel where whereas in in my other novels it's kind of been about like that jar that I was talking about it's been about like the men are doing something much smaller they are kind of not center stage and then here I've written a novel that has 50 guys in it And she's she spends a lot of time on a on a boat with them. And it meant that I could write different kinds of male characters. And so statistically speaking, some of them have to be okay.
0: Right. I mean, he is married, I guess, but like on the other hand, when people got married in the ancient world, it wasn't always willingly. So eh
1: I mean if for no other reason he he, you know, as Jenny said, he's able to respect her prowess and he's able to say, you know what? You deserve this because you have drawn the first blood you've proven yourself as your name suggests you are equal to or amongst equals so I kind of have to like him for that even if he maybe wanted to get in her pants or cheat on or whatever she's wearing leggings I'm not sure
0: possibly leggings I mean if you look at depictions of Scythian women and Amazons and whatnot um shall we talk about the Argonauts They are kind of the ancient world Avengers, right? The best of the best heroes all gathered for a common cause. What was it like getting to describe all of the uh, quote unquote epic men from Atalanta's point of view and who actually lived up to the legends around them and who fell woefully short in your eyes?
2: Well, I mean, so we, we would have to come straight to Jason for the latter half of that question.
0: So I use
2: the Argonautica as my source text for all the adventures of the Argonauts. So, I mean, there's obviously, we've got so many varying accounts of who was on board the Argo and like different versions of maybe the route that they took and so on. So I went with the Argonautica uh, and that was deliberately, I mean, partly because that's our one sort of surviving complete version of the voyage and very detailed. And also because Apollonius in the Argonautica, references Atalanta, who says that Jason refuses her to join them. And so she gives him her spear instead and he takes that on board as an emblem. To me, that kind of suggested that there is some dialogue there. That it sounds I think you could posit that he's kind of refuting other versions. And he's kind of saying, I know some people think Atalanta was on the voyage, how ridiculous. Of course she's not. Um, and that is really the only decision that Jason makes in the in the whole epic because everything else he he passes the book. And as a leader, he just seems so, so entirely ineffectual. He's not the Jason that we, we hate from Euripides. He's not, he's not that man yet. He seems to be much younger, much more, if I use the word ineffectual already, it's the word I keep coming back to, Ash, is ruthless. Jason is ineffectual. I know that as an author, I should have more than one word to describe each character.
1: (laughs) You know what? Nah. (laughs) I think in this instance, ineffectual is probably the kindest word you can use for him. So I'm okay with it.
2: Um, Yeah, because he just, it it seems inexplicable. It seems inexplicable to everybody on board as well why Heracles isn't leading the voyage. And it seems to be really that Heracles has just got some other stuff going on. He's like in the middle of his labours. He's taking a break to join the Argo, but he's going to let Jason lead it. And, you know, if Heracles wanted to take charge, he absolutely could. And there is such, there's, you know, a kind of friction between them all the way through. And Heracles is very difficult to write because somebody like that, and the same with Medea when she comes in later, a character like that is so hugely charismatic and kind of compelling. They're so big. There's so much to, to say, about there's so much that they embody and um, that they really want to take over the whole novel. So kind of squashing Heracles down was something that I found he kept kind of trying to um, trying to be more in the novel than I wanted him to be. And I think that's why in The Voyage of the Argo, you do have to, at some point, get rid of him. Um, because otherwise, Jason isn't going to get his chance to shine uh, when Medea does all the work for him in getting the glory. But yeah, so so Jason really, really kind of fell short of somebody who just seems to lack really kind of any personality or direction. And even the epithet associated with him, that he's he's the one sandaled man. I just found gave me a really comical image, even though it's sort of a a warning prophecy, beware of the one sandaled man, because he's going to come and dethrone his uncle. But he's just he lost his shoe in a river. And this is what defines him. (laughs) Yeah, it just seems less than imposing.
1: I do think Jason, in a lot of ways, lucks into his company. I mean, obviously, he gathers the people together, And then, you know, relies very heavily on other people's talents, including Medea. And the fact that in the end, I mean, this is not a spoiler, he's crushed to death under a rotting beam of the Argo. It kind of explains everything you need to know about him. He can't even maintain his ship properly. I mean, ineffectual is very kind here.
2: Yeah, but you know, not actively malevolent in the Argonautica, I felt. This is like, this is my praise of Jason. He is not so terrible yet. That's still to come. Uh, but yeah so then there was just um a, a lot of the other heroes on there I think were just enjoyable to have like a little sketch of to have um characters like Castor and Polygeses who I didn't get a chance to weave into a lecture when um because they are Clytemnestra's brothers and they I kind of I had them in an earlier version and they had to come out because there were just too many characters too many things going on so it's nice to have them as a cameo the, you know, the, uh, now am I going to say it right, Boreads, (laughs) Boreads, the Sons of the Wind. I didn't realise that I didn't know how to pronounce it until I just tried to say it. And Orpheus, so there was, yeah, really, so again, like Orpheus in other sort of chapters of his mythology, sort of later on becomes a
1: raging misogynist at some point after Eurydice doesn't get to come back with him because of his own actions, he becomes a raging misogynist. And a lot of the um, the Orphic religion and tradition around him, he is the prophet of. And I, I just have so many questions and, and thoughts about like, what is going on there?
2: Yes, definitely. And um, But at this stage of his life, again, he is, it, none of that has yet come to, pray, come to be. So It was, yeah, it was kind of working out so which of these characters are going to be like an ally to Atalanta, which one of these can she form any kind of friendship with and which one of them are going to be antagonistic towards her. And when I came to Peleus, the father of Achilles, um, this is where I really felt, so what do I know about Peleus going into writing this? I know that he married Thetis by forceful means, by basically wrestling her into submission. Um, And that felt to me enough that I needed to know about Peleus to create the rest of his character. Yeah, so he was um, definitely somebody that I had very little sympathy
1: for. So let's talk about the island of Lemnos. So one of my favorite stories in Atalanta's hero cycle is what happens when the Argonauts arrive on Lemnos? What surprised you most about retelling this section of Atalanta's story? And also talking about this little known bit of mythology that is actually quite fascinating and different.
2: Yeah, it's so this actually also came from a short story that I'd written. I'd written a story about Hypsipyle before. And so um, I, I used a lot of that to kind of base this this chapter of it on. But when I'd written it, I'd written it from her perspective. So I was like really with Hypsipyle, And so to reimagine it from how Atalanta is going to perceive what she's done, how an outsider is going to understand Hypsipyle, that put a new light on it for me. That kind of had a different slant. It's interesting because she is such a powerful woman. uh, And so is Atalanta. And so you're kind of bringing these two women together with all of the Argonauts around them. And thinking, how are they going to relate to each other? And with Hypsipyle's story, the fact that she is the queen of a women of, of an island completely composed of women, that their story, like so many stories that make up part of Atalanta's mythology, has got this real <laughs> like a really wild element to it, where I thought, this is a great story. And then I thought, how am I gonna sell this in a novel? This is insane. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, you just you just you just have to like dive right in. And um, so if anybody doesn't know the story, the the women of Lemnos were afflicted with a terrible curse in the form of a stench, a really bad smell <laughs> that affected all of the women on the island and um, annoyed the men of the island so much that they did the only thing that they could reasonably do, which was to go and capture a load of slave women to service all of their needs instead. And the women of Lemnos did not take very kindly to that. And uh, so there are no men by the time Atalanta gets there.
0: That sounds reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) Completely kind. (laughs) Yeah, all of that sounds totally reasonable. And also, uh, Jenny told us that story in a drunk myth on our Patreon, if you are interested in listening to that.
2: A story that really really helps to be drunk for retelling,
0: I think. I think it does, absolutely.
1: (laughs) I feel like the enslaved women were also like, yes.
0: (laughs) What I love about Atalanta is that her view of the world really highlights women, uh, particularly strong women. She's used to living amongst women with lots of agency. And we see time and again that she's drawn to other women who also have this kind of agency. Medea, the women of Lemnos, the nymphs. How exciting was it to recenter the story from this perspective? And how did it differ from your work in Ariadne and Electra?
2: So there is such an element of just enjoyable escapism about this. And yeah, so bringing Hypsipyle and the women of Lemnos into it, I just, I liked the idea of, for, in this case, going back to, I talked when I talked to you like uh, back about Ariadne, I talked about Ovid's heroides, about the letter of Ariadne writes Theseus, while Hypsipyle writes one to Jason as well. Um, and it just doesn't ring as true for me that Hypsipyle would be kind of lamenting the loss of Jason. I feel so much that she's going to use Jason for, for what she needs, And then um, I don't think she's breaking her heart over the fact that he doesn't come back. So I liked recasting her in that role, that when Atalanta sails away from that island, she knows that things have gone according to plan for Hypsipoli, that this is not this is not an abandonment like Theseus and Ariadne. So, yeah, it was just it was just It just felt very natural and very much a part of Atalanta's story that she comes across these women and that she's not surprised by it because she hasn't formed these ideas about gender in her early years because she's grown up amongst nymphs, she's grown up um, with Artemis and to to have a character who, I mean, for a start, I always really enjoy like a bit of a fish-out-of-water story where you put somebody into this new environment and they have to learn all about it which my only reference point that I can think of is like elf or um, in the early Thor movie the first Thor movie where he like I could have watched that for ages where he just comes to earth and he's like smashing cups and getting everything wrong um so I like, I like that kind of
1: the first season of Sleepy Hollow is like that too where you've got this person from like the colonial era in like the mid to like 2010s and he's just like what is a cell phone like how does this work I'm just gonna call the time thing and talk to the you know Siri for hours
2: yeah that kind of thing
1: I just I love that
2: kind of story and when it's a woman who's grown up without I mean it's hard to imagine imagine kind of growing up in a world where sexism just doesn't exist it just doesn't factor into your life and so imagine the kind of woman that that is produced by that environment, it was quite difficult, I think, because it's so much, it's so much ingrained into us, that to try and free her entirely from that. And so when she joins human society, these things come as more of a surprise to her. But it, I mean, that is a really great kind of thought experiment to do, I think.
0: And it's so interesting, too, because I always kind of question the, um, I guess, traditional version of the of the women of Lemnos, where they get rid of all their men who behaved abominably. And then they are just immediately eager to, like, fling their kingdom in the lap of the first ship of dudes that shows up on their beach. Like, it just never rang true to me either.
1: <laughs> they had one one use for those men. And when that use was done, those men could get right back on that ship and get out of there.
2: They were not crying.
1: No, because Lemnos is also one of those islands. I feel like that is the island that is sacred to Hephaestus. So, if you trace some of the mythology, that curse that I think comes down on them is from Aphrodite, and that might have something to do with them sheltering Hephaestus at some point in time. There's also something in that mythology about Dionysus, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. So, the women of Lemnos kind of they don't have a great time of it as a result of maybe some choices other men had made.
2: Another familiar story, apart from the stinkiness, which is their own special, special thing.
1: So, I wanted to talk a little bit about the two men who feature quite largely in Atalanta's lives, maybe love interest or guys she cares about. What drew you to Meleager and Hippomenes and what helped you find their characters and what Atalanta might have found to care or love about in each one of them?
2: So with Meleager, it's very much this idea that the impression he'd made on me in the Caledonian boar hunt was that he was just somebody a bit more secure in himself and somebody who was not going to perceive Atalanta as a threat. And he he didn't have a need to kind of control her. And I did consider other approaches to him, because there could have been a bit of an enemies to lovers thing, which I always really enjoy. There could have been that element of it. But I was just, I found it really appealing to just think, maybe there could be a man who just simply accepts her for who she is and admires her for who she is. And that rang true from his behaviour in the Caledonian bullhunt. So that seemed like a good place to start with Meliega. Um, and I think that the other thing that I knew about him is that when he appears uh, on the Argo, when he's like listed among the Argonauts, that he's one of the younger ones. And so I felt that perhaps he does doesn't, he's not quite so established as well. So h- him and Atalanta, there is an idea that they could be kind of figuring this out together a little bit. Um, so I liked the idea that she could find somebody who is an ally on board the Argo and somebody who, because she is this kind of fish out of water, she is kind of trying to make sense of this world that she's been plunged into that she's, she's going to have somebody that kind of helps her navigate that a little bit as well. She doesn't really need it. She's very self-sufficient. This is also a coming of age story for Atalanta. Um, this is her kind of rite of passage that she goes through and comes out the other end changed. And so he plays a part in that, in kind of shaping who it is that she's going to become and the kind of decisions that she's going to face. And when she is sent out into the world, when she kind of leaves the sanctity of that forest, then she's carrying this condition that Artemis has given her. That if you are a follower of Artemis, then you, you stay away from men. So it throws her into conflict with that. And there's a very rebellious streak in Atalanta. And so there's that tension of, is she going to give in to that rebellious streak? Or is she going to stay loyal to the promise that she's made to Artemis? So he represents all of those things for her on board the Argo. And Hippomenes comes later in her life, and I had a little bit less to go on for Hippomenes, honestly. Um, So I did do a little bit of invention about how he could have found Atalanta in the first place, how their paths could cross. Because I know that we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of the two Atalanta theory, and if they are two different Atalantas, then... Each one is associated with a different one with Meleager, one with Hippomenes. So, kind of bringing him into the Meliega version of Atalanta was a little bit more challenging. But again, I really liked the idea that I could explore in this novel. It's very much about Atalanta is the hero and Atalanta is going on a hero's journey. So, therefore, what are the men going to do? Because she's taken that role. So who are they going to be?
1: They get to be the Disney
2: princesses.
1: <laughs> That's
0: <laughs> all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> I don't know very much about the two Atalanta's theory, and I'm so intrigued by this. And I'm wondering if, if the two of you would like to explain this to me.
2: <laughs> I mean, this is something Liv did a whole podcast episode about when she covered Atalanta. And really, we, do, we have two sets of parentages, parentage for Atalanta, so, um, and two different locations in which she could have been born. So for me, I picked one of them and I went with that. But I think the way, definitely the way that Liv explains it makes a lot of sense that if we've got these, these two different origin stories for Atalanta, you can kind of split the two aspects to her personality which is that she is a really proficient runner and she's a really proficient huntress and those two things don't necessarily go together like they don't have to be the same person you don't need one of those abilities for the other and so it sort of makes sense to think that if we've got two origin stories for her is one of them the huntress and one of them is the runner and at some point these stories have been merged together Or, you know, is it the case that just Atalanta is so amazing that two different regions wanted to lay claim to her? So each created an origin story for her.
0: So are the two Atalantas each associated with two different regions of Greece? Yeah, so we have we have like a Boeotian
2: Atalanta and then the Peloponnesian Atalanta.
0: Yeah, and then if, when you
1: dig into the history, uh, like we were talking about the Minoan foot races and different areas of Greece did have women who participated in foot races at different ages. I feel like I saw this when I was traveling last autumn or in some of my research, like at a certain point in time. There were female only sort of equivalents to the Olympics and they were dedicated to Hera and women of a certain age would compete in foot races and things like that. I could be getting this all wrong, but there is something like that in the history. So that was, I feel like in the mountainous area, I feel like I might have seen it around when I was in the Peloponnese last time. So um, there's different bits of where the foot race came from, where the hunting came from and why the foot races might have been important in different areas of Greece, and why that would have rung sort of more true as opposed to the huntress aspect.
0: Yeah, um, and it's also interesting because I feel like there's a real difference between like the heroine who goes on this hunt for the golden fleece, and who hunts in the forest, and who's raised by bears, and this woman who is basically a princess living in a castle who declares she'll only marry men who can beat her in a foot race, and who is essentially part of greek society at that point it is kind of like melding these two disparate halves of a of a character i suppose or different stories that feel very different to me i don't know if those two parts are separate but it seems like they are
2: yeah i think it really makes sense to see them as two as two different women and i think definitely how that that foot race episode fits into the life of the more wild huntress it doesn't necessarily seem to slot that neatly together Hopefully I made it work in the book.
0: It it doesn't, you know, it doesn't slot that neatly together because I feel like the the huntress Atalanta, if her father was like, well, you have to marry a man, it feels like she would just say no and then leap out a window and run away, you know, as opposed to, as opposed to like being political with her father's feelings and managing him in a way where she says, yes, I will do it, but only under these conditions, which secretly nobody will beat. That feels like a more diplomatic way to handle it than it feels like the Huntress Atalanta might do as someone who just is not aware of gender roles. There is the, the
2: tellings of it where she puts the failed suitors' heads on spikes, though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty hardcore metal shit.
1: <laughs> I would say one of the reasons that Atalanta is my favorite of all of the Greek heroines and listeners, this is, in my humble opinion, Jenny's best book to date and my favorite, But what I will say is the thing that I always loved about Atalanta is there are sort of two women in ancient Greece, Greek mythology, Roman mythology, who get hero's journeys. One is Atalanta and one is um, Psyche from Cupid and Psyche. But the thing about Atalanta um, and the reason I kind of like that it's one person is you have someone who goes from the wild into the world and she comes back changed. And, you know, think about it. It's kind of like the end of Lord of the Rings. Like she can't just go back to being a nymph and living in the wild the way she might want to. Although we're not going to talk about the spoilers of what happens at the end of this. So she has a place in society for a while because she has been changed by her journey. And this is one of those places where we get to see a female character in mythology who goes, leaves the comfort of where she is and has real growth. So as much as I love the two Adelantis theory, and I love that maybe the foot race is not necessarily about her living in a palace and comes back to really older, ancient Minoan roots about agency and choosing your spouse and what that would have looked like. I also love what Jenny's done in this book and this idea that there is a character in this mythology who gets to grow and change and go out into the world, make her mark on it. And, um, you know, we get to see that really traditional journey that, you know, is very well described in A Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, But in this case, she drives everything in a way that doesn't exist in a lot of places.
2: Thank you. That was a really, really great interpretation.
0: This seems like a good time to ask a little bit more about the father palace situation. Eventually, Atalanta is returned to the palace and the father who originally abandoned her as a child. Once she's there, she refuses to give up her agency to anyone who isn't worthy, meaning Her father wants to marry her off. She refuses to marry any man who isn't worthy, who can't beat her in a foot race. She puts the loser's heads on pikes, which is really hardcore metal shit. I love it. Why do you think she eventually chooses to return to the world of men and not the wild?
2: So uh, it just is that sense of you just you cannot go back when... When you have experienced these things, you cannot go back to the person who you were before. And that is just, it's giving me flashbacks to being an undergraduate in like a Greek philosophy class. And that that principle of you never step into the same river twice because it, it's different now. So I just think she, the the voyage of the Argo, the way that it plays out, she's she's gone on this great hero's quest. But the way that things end up with getting the Golden Fleece is it's not really an act of heroism. And like we know the story of how Jason ends up taking the fleece. It's because Medea gives him a magical salve that makes him invulnerable, which is definitely cheating. So it's not really, is Atalanta going to get from that journey what she has gone on it to achieve? And if not, She's not the kind of woman who is then going to think, okay, well, I'm just going to go back to the forest and give up on that, that dream. She is going to go and try and find another way of achieving it. And she's going to go in pursuit of the kind of glory that she joined the Argo for. So I think that's that is why she she just she can't she can't return to to the forest again. She has seen too much and she's experienced too much. And now she knows that she wants something different out of her life.
1: Yeah, and it, I I just find that really beautiful. Like, we don't get to see a lot of women who get to have that journey. It's very much the journey of Frodo and Lord of the Rings, right? But it existed a long time before, and it's about a woman. And she's <laughs> yeah, making the decisions
2: along the way, I think- That's the really compelling part of it, that that she's making those choices.
1: Nobody has to carry her up the slopes of Mount Dune. I'm just saying.
0: This has been so awesome. Jenny, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, well, thank you for having me back again. And it's, yeah, it was my
2: favorite book to write. I I feel like you said, Jen, that I feel like it's my best book. And so this is my favorite of our conversations. So thank you.
0: (laughs) Amazing. We're so glad. Where can people find your book? And where can people find you? So the book is out in the
2: UK on the 13th of April, in the US on the 9th of May. Um, and so you can get it in any bookshop. So uh, Waterstones, Barnes and Nobles so are all the independents as well. Um, you can get it on Audible. You can get it as an ebook. Um, and if you want to find me, I am spending a lot less time on Twitter, um, as I recommend
0: maybe everybody should. <laughs> Fair enough, yes. Definitely agree.
2: (laughs) You would be better off finding me on Instagram where I'm jennifer.saint.author.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show and um, thank you all so much for listening. And we will see you next week.